You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. If you want to turn there in your Bible or find it on your phone. And then when you're ready, if you'll stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. And again, it's Luke. Keep getting it next up. Luke 9, 10 through 17. As on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good evening, my name is Ben Milner, I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to Salem Prez. Um, we're glad you're here. We are looking at the Jesus Storybook Bible, so if you don't have one of these um, and you want to follow along, there's a ton of them right here, so adult or child, feel free to come up and get one. Um, you can have it if you want it. Uh, we bought a bunch of copies for people to have it. It's a great book. It is uh, one of the better ways of understanding the whole scope of the Bible from beginning to end. Uh, because the uh, subtitle of the Jesus Storybook Bible is that every story in the Bible whispers the name of Jesus. And that's, uh, that's what we've been looking at, how even in the Old Testament, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, every single story is, is not about uh, human beings that are heroes. It's not, they're not about how you're supposed to live, live your life. They're not about moral instruction primarily. They're, they're always pointing to the Messiah. So if you don't know the Messiah, Jesus Christ, then you're missing the whole point of what the Bible's about. Um, and we are looking at the, uh, the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000, which, um, which is called Filled Full. 
And it's got a picture of this crowd, and here's Jesus up here, and they're all hungry, and he's going to feed the crowd that are hungry. This fits into the whole idea of the kingdom of God, uh, which is what uh, the author of this book, Sally Lloyd-Jones, she calls the secret rescue plan. That God, um, from the very beginning of time, had this secret rescue plan in mind where he was going to rescue our fallen world um, from domination uh, back into dominion. The world was made uh, for human beings to leave the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and to spread around the world and to fill the world uh, with creativity, reflecting God's creativity. And that was called dominion. We were supposed to, we were supposed to, to garden the planet, uh, to take care of the animals, uh, to build things, to fill the world with all these creative things, just the way that God made the universe out of nothing. And he filled it and he formed it. And we are called to do that too in all our different ways and all the different various vocations we have. That's, that is what we're supposed to do is bring dominion to this earth. And instead of that, we decided we wanted to be God, that we wanted to take control and not reflect God's glory, but we wanted to do it ourselves. We wanted to be the boss of our lives. And so what we did was instead of spreading dominion, we have spread domination. And we have kind of crushed the world under our thumb. We have ruled it as oppressors. We've abused the world. Going back to the abuse paper, that's what we've done. And so God's secret rescue plan is to take this empire of desolation that we have created and to bring in this kingdom of fullness. And that's why it says in verse 11 here, he spoke to them of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and now he's enacting the kingdom of God by healing and by filling these people's stomachs with bread and fish. So we see in this passage that uh, the kingdom uh, comes, provision comes in a desolate place. So this is verse 12. Uh, It says, the narrator Luke says, uh, we are here in a desolate place. So the kingdom comes in desolate places. Uh, Desolation meaning something that's been uh, like rubble or ruin. A house that's been uh, burned down. That's a desolate place. And so in the desolate places we live, uh, where we're nervous about provision, there's not enough. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know the future. In a desolate place, God provides. That's where the king loves to come and provide. That's part of the secret rescue plan. This is provision in a desolate place. And I love the way that the Storbuk Bible puts this um, in this story filled full. This is towards the end, uh, but it says, uh, this is what God has been doing from the beginning. Taking nothing and making it everything. Taking emptiness and filling it up. That's part of the whole plan is for God to be providing and filling where there's nothing. Uh, That's what the kingdom of God is about. Um, And the second part is that God wants to provide so much that he calls us into it. That we get to join him. We're, We're called by God to join him in his filling and in his provision. So... Number one, the king is providing. That's part of the kingdom of God. And number two, we are called by the king into providing with him, which is part of the provision, is that we get to join in. So uh, the beginning of the story says the crowds followed him, and he cured those who had need of healing. So imagine all these people who are in need of healing. Uh, They are afflicted by various diseases and pains. Uh, It says another place in the Gospels they were... They were paralytics, people who were paralyzed. There were people who, were, uh, who had epilepsy, who were having seizures. Uh, those oppressed by demons. People with severe mental illness, maybe schizophrenia. Uh, true demon oppression. 
He also talks about the blind and the lame and the leper in different parts of the New Testament. So imagine these kind of people, this group of folk who are struggling under all these different oppressions. And it says in verse 11 that he healed those who needed healing. So picture a long line of people with tattered garments and crutches and pallets. And uh, they're in these barren hills. He's in this desolate place. And the sun is setting. In verse 12, it says the day began to wear away. So this is towards the end of the day. And uh, the sun is going down uh, on this desolate place, all these people. And he was out there so long uh, that he kind of forgot about eating. It says, again, this is from the Storybook Bible. But it says they, they came before breakfast. They stayed all morning. And they stayed in the afternoon. And they stayed way past dinner. So he, there's this line of people waiting to be healed by the king, the provider. And he is so committed to healing them that he loses track of time and forgets to eat. And uh, my wife is a provider um, in uh, Novant, in the Novant system at Precise Hospital. She's a physical therapist. And she works so hard to provide, she sometimes forgets to eat as well. I'm sure a lot of you who are medical providers do the same. That they're so focused on their healing of their patients that they forget to actually eat sometimes. And that's the, um, that's the heart of our Lord. When you think about Jesus, think about him as a person who is so intent on healing people that he himself neglects food, that he forgets to eat. Um, in verse 12, it says, the, the disciples came to him and they said, send this crowd away into the surrounding villages of the countryside to find lodging and get provisions. And they're, they're nervous, they're anxious because they, there's not enough food to go around. And Jesus ha- hasn't eaten himself. And um, I imagine that he's absolutely exhausted by all these healings. If you've ever seen The Chosen, which is a great depiction of the life of Jesus, uh, it's a TV show, it's a series, and in The Chosen, there's one scene where uh, there are all these people coming to be healed by Jesus, and um, in the course of healing them, it's such a long line that at the end of the day, when he comes back to his tent, he just kind of falls into his tent exhausted. And um, he, is, he is absorbed somehow. All the disease, all the illness, all the hunger, all the pain. In fact, in Matthew eight seventeen, I find this really interesting where Matthew quotes Isaiah 53. And if you know Isaiah 53, that's a messianic prophecy about Jesus bearing our sins. But Matthew actually applies it before the cross, before the actual atonement. He applies it to the healing of Jesus, of all these people with sickness. And Matthew says that he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. So if you are ill or diseased, imagine Jesus just actually absorbing that. He took that. He bore that. That's why he came to earth is to provide by absorbing all this stuff. So he has been absolutely exhausted by all of this uh, healing that he's doing. But even in that state of exhaustion, uh, he's thinking about this crowd who don't have enough food. So this is from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 8, verse 3, because you see Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story. It was, it was seared into the memory of the early church, so they all record this story. But in Mark 8, 3, it says, um, this is Jesus speaking, and he says to the disciples, if the crowd leaves without eating, they will faint on the way home. And some of them live a long way from here. Now, I don't know how he knew all the needs of these people. Maybe he was talking to them when he was healing them, but you can hear the ache in his voice. Even as he imagines their potential plight, he's imagining 
how they will faint if he lets them go. So he's thinking about their needs so much that he's thinking about where they live and what might happen to them. His mind is completely on them. And when you think about your own desolate place, and I know that in all of our lives there is something where we need provision from God. And it might not be food. It might not be money right now. It could be money. But there's some place in your life where there's desolation. And think about the intensity of Christ's concern for each one of you. As he was concerned for this crowd. So it might be car repairs. Uh, it might be hospital bills. Hypothetically. It could be college tuition. It could be a health scare. Something in your life that is um, going wrong with your health, like these people in the story. It could be your future, like what's going to happen after I graduate from high school or college or grad school? Where am I going next? And the provision you need there, that might be your desolate place. Or who am I going to date or marry? It could be a provision of romance or something like that. Or your child, or I want a child, or I have a child, but I don't know what's going to happen to the child. And there's a feeling of desolation. Your home feels desolate. Maybe your home is spiritually desolate and you need the provision. And it says in verse 12, the disciples came to him and they said, send the crowd away because they're hopeless. There could be provision in this level of desolation with 5,000 people. At least those are just men. It might have been more like 15 if you include the women and the children. But all these thousands of people in this desolate place and the disciples say, send them away. Uh, There's no hope for provision here. They've got to go away. And notice the response of Jesus in verse 13 to this accusation. The accusation is uh, he's not a provider. He can't provide. Not in this level of desolation. Maybe he could feed like 10, 15, 20, maybe even 100, but not 15,000. Not in the wilderness. And so they say, send the crowd away. There's this voice of hopelessness. That I know that is always there in the back of our minds. There's no way in this situation God is not going to provide. Now he's provided in the 15,000 situations before this. But in this situation he's not going to provide. And Jesus says no. He, uh, he checks that voice of accusation. No. Uh, we're not going to send them away. Uh, there is hope in the wilderness. He says I want you to give them something to eat. And they have no idea how, the, how the, that's going to happen. Because they have no food. But uh, he finds these five loaves and two fish from this little boy. Uh, that's not recorded in this gospel. It's recorded in another gospel. But he finds uh, these five loaves of bread and two little fish because he wanted both protein and carbs. I find that to be an endearing part of this miracle is that he wants both the fish and the bread. And he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing. So it's not grudging. He's saying a blessing. And this is the blessing he would have said, because this, this is the Jewish table blessing. And they would say, uh, blessed are you, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. That would have been the blessing he would have prayed. And then in verse 16, it says he broke the loaves and he gave it to the disciples and he had them set it before the crowd. And this is where things get kind of mysterious and we don't know what's going on here. I find that to be a really interesting part of this miracle. But he says to them... Take these giant wicker baskets, because we read that in another gospel. They have these giant wicker baskets, maybe the size of, maybe this whole pulpit. Imagine a wicker basket the size of this pulpit. They have these giant wicker baskets. I don't know where they came from, but they have these baskets. And he says, I want you to take these baskets, and I want you to pass out the bread and the fish to the crowd of 15,000 people. And this is where 
It's very subtle. And it's very understated. And I think if it had been made up, if this was just a made up story, they would have inserted all these fabulous details about it. But because it's not made up, it's just a recording of the story that actually happened, they don't really know what happened here. So it's very kind of a British, you know, I like British, uh, dry, understated humor. It's kind of a British miracle because you don't really know exactly what's going on in the background, but the bread just keeps coming out of the baskets. Uh, we don't know when the bread multiplied, or I don't even know, he took the five and he gave them the disciples and the two fish. Who knows when they started to multiply, but at some point, it's like clowns coming out of a clown car, you know, just keep coming and coming and coming. And at some point, the bread is just being multiplied to the, to the, to the extent that it feeds all the people in the crowd. And here's the punchline, uh, verse 17, and what was left over was picked up and there were 12 wicker baskets of broken pieces of bread. And I say that's the punchline because the 12 huge baskets tell you the DNA of our Lord Jesus Christ that he loves to provide and provide overabundantly. Paul says in Philippians uh, that um, he provides abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Abundantly more, super abundantly. His, his provision is super abounding. So he can't get enough of giving. He loves to give so much. This is in the story of the Bible again. Um, but she says, uh, everyone ate as much as they wanted seconds, thirds, even fourths, until they were full and still they were leftovers. The point being that he absolutely loves to provide. Um, Think about your mom or maybe if your dad likes to cook and you come home from school and they have made all these, your favorite desserts, you know, your favorite food, uh, all the things you love the most. uh, Your parent who loves to provide for you because they love to provide has brought to you the things that you love. They know you well, and they know what you need, and they give them to you. And if you're in a desolate place, I would just say that know that the one that made you and the one that is saving you uh, wants you to be filled full. And I know there are times temporarily where there's not enough there. And I know there's purposes in that. And I would say that that is not the, that is not the heart of God. That the final reality is going to be like the original reality, which is that in verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied. That's where we're heading. That is the heartbeat of God. And whatever lack you find right now, uh, that grieves God deeply. And that's not his intentions for this world. So whether it's chronic hunger or water shortage or a healthcare desert, you know, all these societal ills we have with God's lack of provision in America, around the world, that is not the heartbeat of the Father because The Father, the Son, and the Spirit love to provide. And when there's not provision, um, that there's some purpose behind that, that that is mysterious and I can't figure it out. I couldn't tell you what it was. But just know that his heartbeat is always to provide. Uh, That is what he loves to do. Uh, He does not like to deprive anyone. There are times of deprivation, but that is not what he enjoys. Uh, That is not what he desires. So that's the first point, that God provides both Healing, he healed people, and he fed them. But that's not the entire miracle. Like I said at the beginning, another part of the miracle is that we get to provide with him. And that's a really beautiful thing. So lest you think that it's not provision unless it just falls from the sky, know that God uses his body 
his people, his church, to provide. The main ways he provides for one another is when we give things to each other, when we cook things for each other, when we use our hands to heal one another. That's the main way he provides today. So in this parable, in this story, um, God could have simply called down manna and quail. And if you know the story of Exodus, you know that when his people were starving in the wilderness, he just calls down from heaven manna, this weird kind of bread, supernatural bread, and he calls down quail to fall from the sky, and it comes like rain, just drops down. But that's not what he does here. What he does here is different. Uh, In verse 14, he gets them involved. And this is part of the beauty of being uh, part of the kingdom of God, is we get to be involved in God's provision. And he says to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. You know, not 150, uh, not 1,000, but 50. And I love how he immediately gets them involved, gives them something to do, which is so good for us. And he tells them about how much they're supposed to do, about 50 people. So he's giving them these specific instructions about what they're supposed to do, gather them in 50s. And then he says in verse 16 that he broke the loaves, he gave the disciples, and they set before the crowd. So they are supposed to take these baskets and move with the baskets into the people, into the midst of the people. They're not like just lobbing them or like shooting them from a t-shirt cannon, you know, out into the crowds. They, they are supposed to be right there with their hands in the faces of these hungry people, giving them to the people. Uh, Jesus wants them to smell the person that they're giving the bread to because he wants us involved in the lives of people who are sick and who are hungry They are lugging around these giant baskets all over this desolate wilderness and they're passing out the bread and they're cleaning it up that he wants them to be involved, their hands to get dirty. And they're probably thinking, I wish we didn't have to do all this work. I wish he had just let it come down from the sky. And he's thinking, I am so glad they get to be participating in my kingdom. I'm so glad they get to be part of my rescue plan that we actually are involved in the secret rescue plan ourselves. That we help to bring the kingdom. So when you cook a meal for someone, and I hope that we cook meals uh, for families uh, like the Brownlee family. Today they had a baby. They had a baby today, and I hope that some of you will cook meals for them. Uh, People in our church are always in need of meals. There's a list in the bulletin of people who need meals. And if you're cooking these meals, think about how that is your restored dominion. That's God restoring your original dignity uh, of bearing his dominion to the earth by cooking that meal. Or if you're someone who heals, if that's your, if you're in the healing professions, whether mental illness, physical illness, that is God restoring dominion again. As we join in his secret rescue plan, that's actually what we call the creation mandate. Uh, That God created us and he mandated that we go out and we uh, act like he is and bring all this order and healing to the world. Um, He says, I call you, my people, to feed the hungry I call you, my people, to heal the sick. And so when we're doing that, he is, we're, he is taking our little tiny efforts that we, we bring. Um, and it could also be like providing money somehow. It could be multiplying money somehow, as people do, uh, people who are investors, people who know about banking, people who work with people trying to make more money. That's another way of providing. But he takes our little tiny efforts and he makes them beautiful. He multiplies them. So this is my favorite part of the, the Storbic Bible. It's this picture 
And it's, a, it's one of my favorite pictures in the whole thing. But it's a picture of uh, Jesus holding up this basket. And the whole picture is from the point of view of the basket looking down. The two fish, the five loaves, and there's a little tiny boy here. And Jesus is looking down at the little boy and he's winking as he's doing this. And this is what the text says. Um, Jesus asked the disciples, what food do you have? And they were silent. But there was a little boy in the crowd. This is from John chapter 9. And he had brought a lunch that his mom had made with him that morning. And the little boy took his two fish and his five loaves. And he said, I have some. And all the disciples laughed at him when they saw his little lunch. But Jesus winked at the little boy and he whispered, watch this. And he takes that little, and that's, that's, it is John 9. It tells us that this originally came from this one little boy who had his lunch there that day. And that is what he multiplied. As he takes our tiny efforts that are weak, uh, that are half-hearted sometimes, and he uses that to bring provision all over the earth. Um, there's a famous story. It's one of these Christian stories, so I don't know if it's true or not, because a lot of pastors use this story, but... Um, I'm going to hope that it's true, but it's a famous story. You might have heard this in a sermon before. Um, a lot of pastors pass these sermon illustrations around, and like I said, I don't know for sure if it's 100% true, but I love this story. Uh, this mom in 1917 takes her boy uh, to hear the greatest pianist in the world uh, named, this is true, Ignis Paderewski. Uh, Ignis Paderewski was uh, a Polish pianist who actually became the prime minister of Poland, which is probably the only musician to ever become a prime minister of a country. But uh, he was the greatest pianist in the world. The mother and the little boy arrive at the concert early. And they get front row seats because they're so excited to be there. And the mom is talking to uh, the person next to her and gets kind of lost in the conversation. And there's a piano like right there or maybe right up here. And when the mom turns around, she's horrified to see that her little child is playing like chopsticks or something like that on the piano, just kind of banging out a little tune on the piano. And she's about to run up there to rescue her child. And suddenly Paderewski comes uh, kind of walking quickly in to the concert hall. He sits down at the piano, and as the child is playing, uh, Paderewski whispers to him, keep playing, watch this. And then as the child is playing, he begins uh, with his left hand to play the bass, kind of fill in a bass line, and with his right hand, he adds to the melody. And by the end of the time, he's this beautiful piece, uh, and, the, and the audience stands up and applauds, just roars in applause. And the child just thinks that he has done this amazing thing. And it's a great illustration of how God takes these tiny little efforts that we make to provide, and he like makes string music out of it. He, he multiplies them, like the child's five loaves and two fishes. C.S. Lewis says, uh, it's a mystery why God allows prayer to change events. We always ask, why why prayer? Why does God allow prayer to change events? C.S. Lewis says, it's a mystery why God allows prayer to change events. But it's even a greater mystery why he allows anything we do to change the future events. I mean, prayer is just one of those things. Why does God allow us to have the dignity of causality? Why does God allow us to actually participate in anything important, in anything meaningful? Why does he give us that ability? And it's because he wants us to participate in the coming of the kingdom, to participate in his provision to the world. God wants that. You know, Hurricane Ian uh, is now about a week behind us. Uh, 150 mile per hour winds, class four hurricane when it hit 
Fort Myers. It's the fifth most powerful in U.S. history. And there's a picture of Fort Myers where it's got like seven boats just stacked on one another like matchsticks. Just total devastation in Fort Myers. All over Florida. And uh, the response from God's people was just absolutely immediate. They already had it all ready to go, but there were just giant tractor trailer trucks immediately were driving down from Charlotte, uh, Samaritan's Purse, which is Billy Graham's organization, Mercy organization, was just tractor trailers full of food, was, was already heading down there. And there were these uh, Mennonite chainsaw crews that were cutting down uh, trees, helping to clear away rubble. The Southern Baptists sent these huge teams of people to cook meals. Uh, there were Seventh-day Adventist warehousing experts that came down. And there was $35 million donated in five days from just people who care. And, you know, that's a great example of how God, you know, we say, well, why did he allow the hurricane at all? I don't know. But I do know that he brings in his provision right behind it, that he cares deeply about the people there. And he wants us to be part of providing for those people. And the last thing I'll say is that uh, when God provides for us, uh, it costs him dearly. It's not a small thing. Like I was saying, when Jesus was healing those people, he was somehow absorbing all of the things that he was healing. Uh, he took our illnesses. He bore our diseases. And in this story right here, the context is that his cousin just died. It was his best friend. It was like the only person in the world that understood him, John the Baptist. And he had withdrawn to a desolate place to mourn the death of his cousin. That's in Matthew 14, 13. He withdrew from the crowds and he went to a desolate place by himself because he's grieving. He needs to grieve the loss of his best friend on earth. And he's out in the wilderness and he's grieving. And then it says in verse 11, when the crowds learned that he had withdrawn in this place of deep pain, uh, abundant tears, he's weeping over his cousin's death. But when the crowd learned that he had withdrawn, they followed him. So that's why he's in the desolate place. That's why they're in the desolate place is because they are going because they can't get enough of him because he's a provider. So the crowd's going out there um, because he is out there and they know that he is a food machine. And so they go out there in the desolate place and he could have moved to another desolate place. You know, he could have gone <clears throat> to the next set of hills, uh, but he stays. And my favorite little line in the passage, just those three words, <clears throat> he welcomed them. That when he turned around and saw the crowds coming, although he is full of grief, full of his own pain, um, he stretches out his arms and he welcomes their pain. Bring, bring your pain to me. Bring your diseases. Bring your illnesses. Bring your hunger. I want to take it all. He stretched out his arms to embrace their pain, even when he was in pain. And it says in verse 16 <clears throat> that he took the loaves... He said the blessing, he broke the loaves, and he gave it to them. And if you know the New Testament very well at all, or if you've been around Salem very well at all, think about those verbs. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. That's, uh, that's what Luke 9, 16 says. But where else have you heard that? It's the exact same words that are used in the administration of the Lord's Supper. And Luke was making that link intentionally because he says... Basically, that when he did this act of feeding the 5,000, it was anticipation of this act of Jesus giving his own body.
And remember, we love these rascals.